All right, how are we doing, Central? Hey, so good to have you here. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here at Central. Do you want to welcome all of our Central locations? A big shout out to Summerlin and Sunrise Mountain, to Southern Highlands, also our friends in Kingman, Arizona. Great to have you. Uh, I also want to welcome those of you joining us uh, uh, online. Uh, we have people watching around the country, around the world. We consider you a part of our central family, so a special welcome to you. And as always, a big shout out to our friends who join us through our partnership with God Behind Bars. We love you. We're grateful for you. Thanks for being with us this weekend. Well, we are continuing the series we've been in for the past few weeks. What a fun series, straight out of the 90s. Uh, it's been a fun series, a creative series. I've also found it to be a very inspirational series. I think Pastor Judd has done an incredible job these past couple of weeks. Uh, in week one, we talked about the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air making connection to the Fresh Prince of Egypt and, and pulling some powerful, powerful principles from the life of Moses. Last week was hammer time, and it was a really fun week last week in drawing the connection uh, to the character of Samson in the Old Testament. And so today we're going to continue the series, again called Straight Out of the 90s. Now again, I know that we all experienced the 90s a little bit different. For me, I was a teenager in the 90s, graduated high school in 1996. And so for me, as I think about the 90s, the 90s are, are full of all kinds of great memories and really bad fashion decisions, right? <laughs> Uh, I got married in the year 2004. I still had all of my wardrobe from the 90s. One of the most grace-filled things my wife ever did is after her honeymoon, she went to my closet and literally threw everything away and maybe start over. But that, that was the 90s for me. Now, I, I think about a lot of really fun things about the 90s, but one of the things I remember about the 90s was the boom of video games back in the 90s. And again, it wasn't that the video game world started in the 90s. It started long before that through the Atari and through other things like that. But I remember, at least in my life, there was, there was a greater emphasis and maybe a, a, a greater boom in the whole video game industry. Now, back in the 90s, for those of you who weren't around, there were really two main gaming systems that you could lean to. One was the Nintendo system. At the time, it was either the Super Nintendo or the Nintendo 64 and you kind of have all the Mario world and all the, the things that surrounded that. Or you could have gone the route of Sega and Sega Genesis. And it was kind of the whole world of, of Sonic the Hedgehog and all kinds of things like that. Now, for me, I could never figure out why somebody wanted to play a game with a somersaulting hedgehog. So I'd, I stayed away from uh, the, the Sega Genesis. And for me, it was all about the Nintendo. I loved the Nintendo 64. I mean, games like 007 Goldeneye. It was kind of the first-person shooter game. It was great. Uh, I, I remember, you know, games like Zelda, which was a fantastic game. Uh, game. The 1990s gave us Super Smash Bros. What a great game, right? And so there's a lot of great games that I'm reminded about that came out of the 90s, but probably my favorite game uh, that I used to play all the time on the Nintendo came out, I believe, 1996 for the Nintendo 64, a little game called Mario Kart. I loved Mario Kart. I played way too much Mario Kart. Uh, the truth is, I knew every track like the back of my hand, I knew every shortcut imaginable, and it was a full-on, really fun game. Now, there have been a lot of iterations of this game. It's a game that's been duplicated for all the systems that have been made after that. So how many of you have ever played the game Mario Kart? Okay, lots of us have. Uh, here's the question. For anybody who's ever played the game, you always have your go-to character that you choose the character that you want to race with. So really quick, if you played the game before, turn to somebody near you and tell them which is your character of choice. Who did you always race with? Okay, just out of curiosity, how many of you were Mario? Okay, how many Luigi's? 
Any Yoshi fans out there? Man, Yoshi's popular. How about Bowser? He was a bruiser. Kind of beat people up. Now, now you might make fun of me, but my character of choice was Princess Peach. Man. I mean, she wasn't the strongest character. She could get bruised up by some of the bigger ones, but she was fast. She was agile. She looked so sweet, but I'm telling you, she was a force to be reckoned with. I used to call her the golden-haired warrior. I need to mess around. Now, the, the reality of the game is the point is very simple. You do whatever it takes in order to win. And when I say whatever it takes, I mean whatever it takes. If you play the Mar game Mario Kart right, you have to play a little dirty. You have to strategically drop banana peels in order to spin your opponents out. I, I saw this picture recently. I thought this was funny. Uh, this guy behind the wheel of a car says, when the idiot behind you is following too closely, but they have no idea you're an expert in Mario Kart. Well played. And so that's what you would do. You play a little dirty, you drop a banana peel and, and watch the opponent spill out, spin out. Or, or you'd take a turtle shell and you'd fire it and you'd try to knock them off the track. Or you'd get that little lightning bolt thing and it, it shrunk everybody. you drive right over the top of them. I got joy in those types of things, right? I mean, there, there was something about it that you literally, you do whatever it takes in order to win. Even if that means playing a little dirty. Now, this is a fun strategy when it comes to the game Mario Kart. It's a pretty lousy strategy if I adopt that as the philosophy of my life. The truth is, for me, I love to win. Not just at the game of Mario Kart. I just like to win at things. I'm a pretty competitive person. I like to come out on top. I like to hoist the trophy at the end. And the challenge is, if I'm not really careful, I sometimes will do things that I shouldn't do in order to get to the top. Does that make some sense? So the question becomes, what's going on in my heart with that? I think at the end of the day, what, what goes on, at least in my own heart, is, is winning for me is about a sense of worthiness. There's something about like when I win, I, I, I feel probably more worthy. And I think that the fundamental issue sometimes that I wrestle with my own heart is, is I want to feel worthy. Maybe I may talk about it this way. I want to feel like I'm great. And I think whether it's winning or whether it's something else, I think probably for all of us, we, we, we have what I would just call like a measuring stick. And it's the measuring stick that we use to define what worthiness or what greatness looks like for us in our own lives. And we can do a lot of different things and we can use the measuring stick to do a lot of things to determine our own worth or determine our own greatness. And there's a lot of different ways we can measure it in our world. So, for example, on the athletic field, uh, there's even a term in athletics today that's called the GOAT, which stands for the greatest of all time. And we have debates about who's actually the greatest, who's worthy of the title the GOAT. So in the basketball realm, we might say, is it, is it MJ or is it LeBron? Kobe came along and he proclaimed it himself, is what I understood, right? Or, or maybe in the football realm, you might think, is it Tom Brady or is it... He's got six Super Bowl rings. Who can really compete with a guy, right? Or, or maybe I would even argue the greatest athlete of all time, Muhammad Ali. He told us that he was the greatest of all time, right? And so here's the reality that there is, there's, there's a sense of ability, that if I have a certain ability, then maybe that makes me great. But we have other things in our culture that we use as a measuring stick for our worthiness or a measuring stick for our greatness. And, and maybe we might measure it by... A position we hold, 
Uh, it, being the CEO of a company, being an owner of a business, being the coach of a team, and whenever we're on top, then that somehow makes us worthy. Or maybe we measure our worthiness by our wealth or our material possessions or maybe the stuff that we can accumulate in life, and the more we have, the more worthy we are. Or maybe we measure it by influence. It's about the number of social media followers we have or the number of posts that we, uh, that we get likes on. But, but we all have this measuring stick when it comes to greatness. But the question is, what does greatness look like in the eyes of God? There's, there's a great story that's located for us in the book of Matthew chapter 20. So if you've got a Bible, you can go to the book of Matthew chapter 20. And what we'll discover is this conversation about greatness, this conversation about being worthy, this is not a new conversation. Uh, it's been going on for the better part of at least 2,000 years, maybe even more than that. Now let me give you a little bit of background of what's going on uh, in Matthew chapter 20 before we dive into the, the text together. Here, here's where we're at in Matthew chapter 20. We're now three years into Jesus' public ministry. And what we know about Jesus is he surrounded himself with these 12 friends. We now know them as his 12 disciples. Now these guys were close. They, they, they followed Jesus everywhere he went. They, they, they heard him every time he taught. They, they heard the amazing sermons that he delivered, the incredible parables that shaped people's lives, the authority and command that as he captivated audiences. That one was an amazing thing to experience. They watched all of his miracles play out. Uh, they would have seen him give sight to the blind and make lame people walk. He took a couple of loaves of Wonder Bread and a couple of sea bass, fed 5,000 people. What an amazing thing to witness. And so after all that they had seen, after all that they had experienced, after all that they had heard, we're now toward the very end of Jesus' public ministry. They're now on their way to Jerusalem. Now we now know that in Jerusalem is the very place that he would be arrested, he would be tried, he would eventually be crucified. We're probably less than 10 days away of all of those events playing out. They are now on their way to Jerusalem when this conversation breaks out about who's the greatest. And not was, the conversation was not just between a couple of Jesus' closest friends, they actually brought their mama into the conversation. So here it is. Uh, we're going to be in the, the book of Matthew again, chapter 20. And if we really want to wrestle with this conversation about greatness, here's the first thing we need to lean into. We've got to learn to seek greatness in the eyes of God. Learn to seek greatness in the eyes of God. So here we are, Matthew chapter 20. We're going to start at verse 20. Uh, help me out with the highlighted word when we get there. Here's what it says. It says, then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectively to ask a favor. What is your request, he asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of what? Honor, Honor next to you. One on your right and the other on your left. And so these two guys, James and John, they come with a simple question. But notice they didn't just come by themselves, they came with their mama for their mama to do their dirty work. And basically what the question was is, is Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, uh, Jesus, we, we see you as somebody who is great, and so when you come into your greatness, can we be your right hand and left hand a guy? I mean, can we also be in a position of greatness? Can we be in a position of honor? Because if we can be in that position, by large, I'm going to feel pretty worthy. Now, what's interesting about these two guys, James and John, is, is, is if you really look at their journeys all throughout the, the Gospels, you'll discover that these, kind, these guys, they were, 
they were kind of the men of men. These, these guys were the tough guys. Uh, there's actually a reference to them that calls them the sons of thunder. To me, if we think about the 90s, this sounds like a WWE tag team, in my opinion. This is like Macho Man Randy Savage and, and, and Stone Cold Steve Austin against the Sons of Thunder. That's what it makes me sound like. And so these tough guys, these guys who are kind of known as like the man's man, they've got their mama coming to them to ask this question to Jesus. Basically saying, hey, can we be on top? Can we be on the top of the pedestal? Can we kind of be in first place when it comes to your kingdom? It reminds me of about a year ago. Uh, many of you know that I've, I've started doing some racing. And so about a year ago, I decided to sign up for a half marathon. Uh, I ran it in the area in, in which I live. And I've been trying to get my two boys, uh, Levi and Austin, they're 11 and 9. I've tried to get them into running a little bit. Just part, just get them active and keep them in shape. And so this particular race, I signed myself up for the half marathon. I signed my two boys up for a 5K race that was happening at the same venue on the same day. Actually, one race was happening while the other was going on. And so my boys, they did a little bit of work. They did a little bit of training. They showed up that day. My wife ran with one of my sons. A good buddy ran with another one of my sons. And they did great. I was so incredibly proud of them. It's their very first race. They actually finished first and second place in their age group. And so we were pretty pumped for them, we were pretty excited for them, but what they didn't know and what we didn't know is that when you sign up for a race, you're given these little GPS trackers. Part of it is to make sure you actually run the full course, and then your official time is actually connected to these GPS trackers. When we, when we were giving them to our kids, we accidentally gave them the wrong tracker. And so Levi had Austin's and Austin had Levi's. Now, as you can probably imagine, older brother actually won the race. He actually came in first place. But because he was wearing Austin's tracker, as far as the score, uh, the official score was concerned, Austin was the one who had come out on top. And so they did this whole award ceremony, you know, and my, my boys were called in to be recognized, and they started to announce who won. And sure enough, little brother is standing proud on position number one, and older brother is fuming, you know, sitting there on position number two. And you can see it in his eyes. He's like, I won that race, you know. And he was so angry with the fact that his little brother is standing in the position that he felt like he rightfully deserved. And so it didn't take him a half a second to step off that podium, go directly to my wife, and get his mama to do the dirty work. <laughs> then he went to my wife and he goes, you need to circle that little uh, like master of ceremonies together. We need to do that ceremony over. You need to explain to them what happened because I need my rightful position on top. And I kind of think about that story and I think, that's exactly what's going on in Matthew chapter 20. These, these guys are wanting the top position and they send their mama to do the dirty work. But in their heartbeat, here's what they're asking. They want to be great. And a lot of times how we think about greatness is greatness is associated when you when you get close to somebody that you think is great, they knew Jesus was great. Uh, they'd been with him for three years. They'd seen all that he had done. They'd seen all that, that, that the God had accomplished for him. They thought that maybe, just maybe, he was the promised one of God, that he was the Messiah, the Christ. He was all that. And the truthfully, they recognized that Jesus was actually the goat, that Jesus is, just so we're all know, it isn't MJ, it isn't Tom Brady. Jesus is the greatest of all time, Right? And the disciples, they, they recognized that. They saw that. And they thought, if Jesus is the greatest of all time, the closer I am to him, 
the more I can also experience my own version of greatness. Now, it's amazing if you kind of look at this particular story, Jesus doesn't rebuke their question. There is nothing wrong with their question. There's nothing wrong with you desiring to be great. There's nothing wrong with you desiring to be worthy or or desiring to, to be something special. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be great. The question is this. Do you want to be great in the eyes of people or do you want to be great in the eyes of God? Because the challenge is we know what the measuring stick is of what it means to be great in the eyes of people. It usually includes some sort of power, authority, influence, ability, wealth, whatever. That we know what it looks like to be great in the eyes of people. But something tells me God has a very different measuring stick. Something tells me that greatness in the eyes of God looks incredibly different. And so if we want to be great, not just in the eyes of people, if we want to be great in the eyes of God, we've got to learn to redefine greatness. Learn to redefine greatness. Here's how the story continues. Uh, Matthew chapter 20, we're going to be in the next verse, it says this. Again, help me out with the highlighted words, it says this. But, But Jesus answered by saying to them, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. What in the world is that about? I mean, they just asked for, hey, Jesus, you know, when you come into your kingdom, can we be your vice president and your chief of staff? And then all of a sudden you start talking about a bitter cup of suffering? What in the, what in the world is that about? Now, notice Jesus' initial response. Again, it was not one of rebuke. But what he says to them is, is you don't really fully understand what you're asking. Here's what was behind Jesus' response to them. I mentioned before that the disciples recognized that that Jesus was the goat. I mean, he's the greatest of all time. And what they also recognized, that literally for hundreds, if not thousands of years, God had been predicting that he was going to send somebody to the nation of Israel that was ultimately going to bring deliverance and salvation. He was going to be the king of Israel. He was going to reign in an area of prosperity and peace. And the nation of Israel had longed for this, had hoped for this, had prayed for this, had waited for this. I mean, this was a moment, right, that God was going to send somebody into the world and was going to bring deliverance to God's people. Now, what they thought that that meant was connected to their history because they had had kings in their history. Kings like King David who reigned and who ruled on a literal throne, a royal throne in Jerusalem reigning over a nation. They expected this Messiah to be a lot like King David. And so they began to think about, man, Jesus sure seems to have the characteristics of everything that God had said about this coming Messiah, this anointed one, the Christ. I think that he might be it. And so they start thinking about that. They start, they start longing for that moment that maybe he was the fulfillment of Messiah. Now remember where they're going. They're going to Jerusalem. In the minds of the disciples, here's what that meant. That Jesus was going to set up a political kingdom. That Jesus was literally going to be a king sitting on a royal throne in Jerusalem. There was only one challenge with that. He would have to overthrow the oppressive government of the Roman Empire in order to do so. So what they were expecting as they traveled to Jerusalem is that Jesus would gather an army of people in Jerusalem. That they would use swords and force in order to overthrow the Romans to set the nation free. It was their own salvation and deliverance and that Jesus would sit on a throne and reign in Jerusalem. That's what they expected. 
And so that's why they're chomping at the bit going, hey, man, when that happens, we might be days away. We might be weeks away, maybe months at best. And when you beat the whoopee out of the Romans, man, I can't wait to be there. And when that all plays out and you sit on your royal throne and everybody in the entire nation looks to you as the greatest of all time, can I be right next to you? Because if I'm right next to you, I might feel worthy as well. The challenge is, though they were going to Jerusalem, Jesus would never rally together an army. Uh, Jesus would never take out a sword. Jesus would never, politically speaking, use power and authority to overthrow the Roman government. Instead, in less than 10 days, there was somebody on his right and his left. But they weren't sitting on royal thrones. They were hanging on criminals' crosses. And you begin to see in Jesus, the pathway in his kingdom looks very different than the pathway in our world. That when it comes to the kingdom of Jesus, greatness is not defined in terms of power, might, authority, and influence. Greatness is redefined in terms of humility, love, and sacrifice. Do you want to be great in the eyes of people? Or do you want to be great in the eyes of God? If you want to be great in the eyes of God, we recognize that God redefined what greatness is all about. And he redefined it in the context of love, humility, compassion, and sacrifice. It's kind of interesting that Jesus has this way of just flipping things upside down. I mean, because you and I, we, we live in a dog-eat-dog type of world that we many times find ourselves in a place that we will do whatever it takes to claw our way to the top. If we need to drop a banana peel, if we need to fire a turtle shell, I mean, whatever it takes, we've got to get our way to the top. And the challenge is, many times we sacrifice things that we were never meant to sacrifice in order to work our way to the top. We'll put our, our marriages, we'll, we'll sacrifice our marriages, we'll sacrifice our physical health, we'll sacrifice our integrity. Sometimes we will compromise so much to get to the top. And Jesus says, what if it's not about clawing your way to the top? What if it's about serving your way to the top? What if greatness is not defined by power, authority, and influence? What if greatness is defined by love, humility, and sacrifice? Jesus flips it on its end. If you want to be great in the eyes of God, we've got to redefine greatness and learn to do this. We learn to serve your way to the top. You learn to serve your way to the top. Again, if you continue on the story in the, in the book of Matthew chapter 20, here's what you read next. It says that when the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." 
the way I picture it looks a lot like this. This is a picture of kind of how we think about greatness in our world. And typically it's the one on top, it's the big star on top. That's the person that we define as the greatest. Again, whether it's Michael Jordan, whether it's Tom Brady, whether it's Muhammad Ali, whether it's the CEO of a company, whether it's the owner of a business, whether it's uh, the parent of a household, whoever that person is, the person who's in charge, the person who's on top, we typically see that person as the greatest. And then we typically do this is whoever's on top becomes the one that everybody else serves. But Jesus says, that's not my way. That might be the way of the world, but that's not my way. And Jesus flips it upside down. He says, you want to be great? Let the first be last. And the one who's last becomes first. Jesus flips the script that the greatest is the one who's the servant of all. Greatness is not defined by how many people serve you. Greatness is defined by how many people you're willing to serve. Here's the beauty of Jesus' model. The beauty of Jesus' model is that means that anyone can be great. That means you don't have to have a special ability to be great. Uh, that, that means you don't have to have influence to be great. Uh, that means you don't have to have uh, you know, a, a college degree or even a high school diploma. Uh, that means you don't have to have all the things that the world tells you you have to have. You don't have to have wealth. You don't have to have power. You don't have to have prestige. You don't have to have any of that stuff. All you have to have is a heart that's willing to serve the lives of others because that's what it means to be great. The truth is that the truth is that, that levels the table for every one of us. Every single one of us can be great because every single one of us can embrace the heart of what it looks like to serve everybody else. Greatness is not defined by how many people serve you. It is defined by how many people you're willing to serve. Greatness is love. It's compassion. It's humility. It's sacrifice. We don't earn greatness through competition. We serve greatness. We serve our way to greatness through compassion. But here's the beauty of it. Though this feels so upside down in our world today, there's going to come a day that Jesus flips it back over again. If you think about the life that he lived on this earth, he lived his life like this. He was the one who was the greatest. He had all the power, all the might, but he chose to live as a humble servant. He chose the path of love and compassion and sacrifice ultimately to give his life on a cross for you and I. But what we know as scripture progresses in eternity, he's given the highest position, the position of greatest honor. And the truth is for those who are willing to live in his way and live in his model of greatness today will receive the greatest position of honor in the life to come. Those who are willing to serve in obscurity, those who are willing to be faithful when nobody's watching, those who are willing to serve in secret, even if there's no reward, Jesus says, I see it, 
and it will one day be rewarded. Those who serve in this life will have the greatest reward of the next. Those who give in this life will receive the greatest honor in the next. You want to be great? Don't claw your way to the top. Serve your way to the top. Don't exalt yourself. Let the God of the universe exalt you in your life. Here's the beautiful thing. The truth is about the world in which we live, we, we try to measure ourselves, right? And we have all this measuring stick of, of what it really takes to be worthy. The greatest news in the world is because of Jesus, you are already worthy. You don't need power or influence or authority to be worthy because God has already declared you worthy in Jesus. You don't need these things to feel worth. You are already of utmost worth the creator of the universe. And here's the truth about this measuring stick. Whatever measure we use to determine our greatness is often the very measure we use to beat ourselves up. And often we feel a lack of worthiness because we feel like we never measure up. The truth is with this measuring stick, it's worthless. My friends, you're already worthy. The God of the universe came in your place. The one of the greatest love, the greatest humility, the greatest servanthood, the greatest sacrifice. And through him, you were already worthy. You don't have to earn anything. He's already given it to you in his son, Jesus. And so because of that, I don't have to claw my way to the top. Out of already being worthy, I have the opportunity to serve and to give and to love. And through it, you'll find the greatest sense of worthiness this world would ever know. So what does this mean, and, and how do we live this out in a practical way? There, there's a lot of ways to serve. There's a lot of ways to give. There's a lot of ways to exercise compassion in someone's life. Uh, one, one real practical way to do it in the season is, has been mentioned. This is a season that we are ramping up for Easter, the greatest celebration of the greatest single event in human history, in my opinion. Uh, when we think about celebrating the, the life, the death, the resurrection of the person of Christ, there is no greater reason to celebrate in the world as so we're just a few weeks away from, from Easter weekend, we couldn't be more excited about it right here in Easter. Here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, all those in your life that, that God has in your life in a very purposeful way. And here's the truth. One of the greatest ways you can serve people is by simply extending an invitation to people. Uh, there's something about extending an invitation, extending a sense of belonging, invite somebody to sit with you as a part of this experience, giving people the opportunity to connect their life to the life of God, connect their heart to the heart of God, connect their hand to the hand of God. That is, that is unlike any other experience. 
So here's my encouragement to you. Take these resources. There's cards, there's posters, there's door hangers. There's all kinds of, of invite resources. Take them. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. And couple the invite with something that, that's generous to somebody in your life. It can be a simple gift. It can be an encouraging note. Serve someone lift them up, and in do so, create a sense of belonging by inviting them to be a part of what could be a life-changing, eternity-altering experience as they join you right here at Easter at Central. Are you willing to do that? I would encourage those of you who are at one of our central locations, grab invites, extend them. I would love for them to join you at your central locations. Those of you who are joining us online, there's great ways to invite people. You can share links. You can share social media feeds. Ask somebody over your house. Watch Easter at Central together with somebody in your home. There's lots of ways to include people. Think about it as an opportunity to be great in the eyes of God by serving people that he loves. There's no need to ever claw your way to the top. We have the opportunity to serve our way to the top. As I mentioned before, one of the most important truths is simply this. You were already worthy. I don't know where you're at in your journey. I don't know what even brought you here this weekend. But maybe that's the most important message you need to take with you, that you are already worthy. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to earn anything. It's already been done for you in the person of Jesus. And maybe today's the day that becomes a marker event in your own journey when you yield your life to the life in the person of Jesus Christ. And I want to give you the opportunity to do that this weekend. If you'd like to become a follower of his, if you want to yield your life to him, if you want to be a part of the greatest journey this world has ever known in following Jesus, I want to invite you to do so. You can simply respond by praying a simple prayer with me. Uh, and so if you'd like to become a follower of Jesus, I would just ask that you pray the words of this prayer after me. If you would bow your heads and pray this prayer alongside of me. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for loving me. I believe you died on the cross for our sins. I believe you rose again. Jesus, forgive us for our sins. Give us the gift of eternal life. Help us overcome the challenges I'm up against. I surrender my life to you. In Christ's name. With every head bowed, with every eye closed, if you made that commitment, at one of our central locations, if you're joining us through a partnership with God Behind Bars, if you're watching in your home online, if you made that commitment, if you would respond by simply placing your hand in the air, just acknowledging that commitment before God today. Father, I pray for every single hand going up in this room, at every central location, those joining us online, those joining us through a partnership with God behind bars. God, every single person that's reaching out to you, I just ask that you'd reach back to them in this moment. Father, help them sense that they are already worthy. God, there's nothing else that needs to be done, that we're already worthy because of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we give our lives to you. We say thanks in his name. Amen.